And the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar to... goes to... My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Yeah. All real man. Love is, is love. too weak a word. Stay back. I, I, I love you. I love you. I love you. I did as you Don't laugh! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie! Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. And the Oscar goes to Green Book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 154 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. Time of recording, 11.16 a.m. on August 4th, 2019. Here to join me this week for this episode, I have... Michael Schwartz. Hello, everyone. Thanks for the buildup. Absolutely. You deserve it. Nicole Ackman. Hi, friends. Lauren LaMagna. Good morning, everybody. And the incomparable Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. How's everyone doing this week? Doing great. You all getting ready for phase one? <laughs> we have so much to talk about with phase one. You know, I feel like I'm locked and loaded here, ready to go. You know, all good. Yeah. So for those that don't know, maybe new to the show. Phase one is, for us, the fall film festival season. Usually what we do is we consider phase one to be when the time uh, Venice starts up until um, the first announcement of the Critics Awards. And then that's phase two for us, where the Critics Awards start, and then it culminates up until the announcement of the Oscar nominations. And then you enter into phase three, where it's just like the song and dance is over. We have our nominations. Now it's just all about campaigning. And this year's phase three, obviously, is going to be a shorter window because of the uh, push uh, pushed forward release date. Uh, well, not release date, but, you know, the Oscar ceremony date uh, this year in early February. So it's going to be a very interesting season to say the least but we're all very very excited we had some announcements this week for nyff uh we got the three main selections for their opening their centerpiece and closing night film uh last week we went over the venice and tiff lineups there are expected to be more announcements for both um tiff and also uh for nyff obviously with their main slate which should be dropping any day now uh, we also had some trailers drop this week. Actually, we had a lot of trailers drop this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about three of them. We'll be talking about The Irishman, 1917, and The Lighthouse. We're going to go over the polls, and we're also going to answer your questions on air. But to start us off, Michael Schwartz, what did you catch up on this week? I caught up with The Farewell this week. Ah, great choice. Great choice. What did you think? Really, really wonderful. You know, this is a movie that I had heard a lot about since Sundance. I think you were the first person to tell me about it at Sundance. And, you know, I had known I was going to like this. I saw the trailer. It looked like it was right up my alley. And it is a beautiful, moving, funny, poignant film that I hope really breaks through into the Oscar conversation because it deserves it. You know, performances, writing, even Best Picture. I think this was a wonderful, wonderful film that will remain one of my favorites of the year. Yeah, I think so, too. It's currently sitting very, very pretty as my second favorite film of 2019 right now. I have a hard time imagining it falling out of my top 10. I, I, I agree with everything you said there, Michael, and I highly encourage anyone that has not yet seen The Farewell to definitely check it out because, you know, unlike movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Hobbs and Shaw, a movie like The Farewell really, really does need that wave of support in order to not just 
you know, kind of propel that movie forward into the awards conversation, but also to grant more opportunities for more filmmakers that want to tell similar stories like that. You know, we're always talking about uh, diversity and also trying to push more voices out there. Well, the people that greenlight these movies and invest the money to make them happen listen to the dollars. So if you're not coughing up the dollars, then it ain't going to happen. Yeah, I was very surprised that on my uh, on a Thursday night of my screening, it was about 730 at night, uh, it was pretty packed. And this was at a suburban theater. So I'm glad people are coming out to see it. Aquafina is great. Jell Su Shen plays Nai Nai should be right at the top of the supporting actress conversation. Yep. Don't forget it, people. Also, Diana Lin, who plays uh, the mother, she's really terrific also. We did a podcast review of that film uh, very recently, actually, and on it we discussed how The Farewell could be a contender for SAG Ensemble, Zhao Shuzhen, as you said, supporting actress, hell, even Aquafina, best actress. You know, there's a lot of possibilities for this movie to contend in a lot of categories outside of just... Uh, the expected possible, more more than probable screenplay nomination. So hopefully uh, it can be a contender elsewhere as well. Anything else, Michael? That was it. I saw some stuff on Broadway this weekend, but that was it in terms of movies. Nicole? I uh, actually didn't make it to the movie theater this week. Unfortunately, unlike other people who had uh, the Nightingale and Loose open in their cities Friday night, I did not, but I did stay home and watch uh, Descendants 3, the Disney Channel original movie, with my parents and my sister, um, which mostly is exciting because Kenny Ortega, who directed and choreographed it, as he did for the High School Musical movies, just got his star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame at the end of, uh, I think, June or July. So, excited. I think maybe July. So, um I personally think Descendants is the best Disney Channel franchise ever. So if you have young people in your life, definitely check it out with them. Um, I think that some of the young stars in it are definitely going to go on to be uh, bigger names in Hollywood. But also it was a really um, loving tribute, I think, to to Cameron Boyce, one of the stars of it who passed away recently. You know, um, quick side note with uh, Descendants 3. I didn't know what this was. <laughs> and I just saw the hashtag kind of floating around. So I was like... Was there like a straight to VOD Descendants 2 and now there's a 3 that I don't know about? The exact thing, Matt, when they did that a couple years ago. I was like, what happened? Did Alexander Payne do something else that I don't know about? Yeah, exactly. All righty. Lauren? I also had a pretty busy week, so I didn't really get to the theater. I just stayed on Netflix trying to go through their original content just to get some viewership up. So I watched the Red Sea Diving Resort with um, Chris Evans and... I love Chris Evans. I'm excited to see what he does post his Captain America run, and I'm excited for um, his new works and his new stuff that he's doing. So, like, I was really interested to see him work without the shield, and it was a pretty good film. He plays um, a member of the Israeli Air Force, and he's smuggling Ethiopian Jews out of Africa and into Israel. So it's a pretty interesting story. It's something I never heard of. And if you're interested in it, you should definitely check it out on Netflix. Okay. Yeah, no, I saw the trailer for that, but I uh, did not know what the uh, reception was at first. Um, Definitely will add it to the list as something to watch at home, though. Josh, what about you? Well, I didn't catch up with a ton of movies this week, but I did also get to see The Farewell, finally. And I agree with everything that Michael said. I think that it's a beautiful film, so well told. The performances are so great. And... It might actually be my favorite film of the year so far. I just think that that is a movie that 
is so well done in its storytelling and it's a movie that really stays with you too like i saw it a couple days ago and i'm still thinking about moments of that film i think it's just a really beautiful piece of work uh i saw hobbs and shaw uh this week uh review for that is currently up on the website and also on the podcast so if you want to know my thoughts check that out I rewatched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. After uh, rewatching The Hateful Eight and actually having a more positive experience with that movie, uh, which we also did a podcast review of, and Josh, you wrote a nice review on the website for. Thank you. It it kind of inspired me to go back and immediately watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood versus waiting, you know, until like Blu-ray to see it again. I felt compelled to go to theater, so I went. And just like Hateful Eight, I had a much more positive reaction to it uh, a second time than I did the first time. And then next thing you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up rewatching Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained at home because <laughs> I just couldn't get enough now at this point of Quentin Tarantino. Good and he, he has enough movies now where it's like it's just like this abundance of riches. And I, I have to say, like, for each one of the movies that I rewatched again, uh, both Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, they all went up one full point for me from my original rating. Uh I think that his movies really, really do hold up over time. And it's pretty incredible, all things considered. The, the writing is sensational. As far as like a new release goes, um, I saw uh, the much talked about because of Dakota Johnson's stands, The Peanut Butter Falcon, uh, starring Shia LaBeouf, Dakota Johnson, uh, a couple of other people too, like Bruce Dern is uh, in this one. Um John Bernfall, John Hawks, and uh, this newcomer, uh, Zach uh, Gotzigan. And yes, uh, Michael, it's directed and written by Michael Schwartz. (laughs) 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 Yeah, not not that Michael Schwartz. Uh, Also, uh, you don't know that. (laughs) Hey, 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 you know. Also co-written and co-directed by Tyler uh, Nilsson as well. So, uh, Michael, if you ever want to introduce me to Tyler, please do. Uh, This is a very, very sweet indie movie. It's funny. It's got a good heart. It's got some great messages about uh, heroes in it and uh, living life to the fullest. It's a very, very nice movie. Um, It's not necessarily going to be like a game changer or anything like that. But if you want to just check out a feel-good indie movie, um, it's pretty, pretty decent, I have to say. And I think that uh, people will definitely enjoy the hell out of this one. Not to mention, Shia LaBeouf, I think, is going to have an amazing year, both with this and Honey Boy which um, has been announced to come over to TIFF later on. So I'm just saying, watch out for a supporting actor uh, nomination for Shia at some point, possibly, uh, because that performance, I saw it at Sundance. It's by far the best thing he has ever, ever done. All right. So we are now going to move over to our discussion for this week, which was the three main announcements for the New York Film Festival. My hometown! We have... As the opening night film, the world premiere of Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, Harvey Keitel, and a bunch of others. What I want to do is I want to talk about the trailer, and then we'll talk about, uh, you know, our thoughts on the movie in general, okay? So, here's the trailer for The Irishman. Hey, my friend, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Hello? Is that 
Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. Our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. Only three people in the world have one of these. And only one of them is Irish. I heard you paint houses. Yes, I do, sir. Where are you going? Going to work. Well, you know, there's a situation going on now, Frank. Big business and the government, they're trying to pull us down. You might be demonstrating a failure to show appreciation. I know things they don't know I know. You can't miss the big picture. Sooner or later. Get that gun out of his hand! Everybody put here as a date when he's gonna go. You wanna be a part of this fight? Would you like to be a part of this history? Yes, I would. Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. He likes to talk, don't he? Holy moly. Yeah. Oh my god. This is just this. Matt, go on. I don't have the words right now. Okay, so here's what I will say. I've been hearing a lot about this movie for months now. And what I can tell you is I can tell you that Netflix did not know if this movie was necessarily going to be completed in time. If so, um, they were positioning Marriage Story to be like their number one awards contender this year, as um, you know, we've all been discussing over the last couple of weeks as well. However, Irishman was able to get finished in time where it could qualify for the Fall Film Festival run. Um, it's not going to be a late December release. This is actually going to be releasing around probably around Thanksgiving. And so now Netflix finds themselves in a very interesting situation where they've got two very, very big awards contenders in their back pocket. Unlike last year where they had Roma and a few other titles, yes, but Roma was really their uh, golden goose. So I could literally see a world where Irishman and Marriage Story, like, kind of split the below the line and above the line wins on Oscar night. Potentially, potentially. I'm not saying that it's going to happen definitively, but um, I think that that's where their headspace is at right now. And based on this trailer, it looks like another technical masterpiece from Martin Scorsese in so many different ways. Certainly does. Um, I do think, though, that I just get vibes from this movie that it's going to be really dependent on the critical response to it. Yes. And I, I really do believe that there's going to be obviously a lot of people that want to see it. There's going to be a lot of reverence for Scorsese. But I do worry a little bit that if this movie just kind of hits like lukewarm reviews, like people just like it, that because of how much ambition is sort of on display in this film, that that could potentially spell some trouble for it. Well, what I'll say in regards to that is this. I, I, while I do agree with you that the critical reception will be extremely important, um, I could also see this possibly even going the route of something like a Gangs of New York, where the critical reception was not universal. It was, you know, in that good, not great territory. But 
it, you know, it was one of those things where it's like the ambition that's on display with the visual effects. Well, not for Gangs of New York, but you know what I mean? Like with the Irishman, uh, there's enough there for the below the line branches to kind of propel it forward still into some of the other main categories. Certainly. I mean, it's still a Scorsese movie, so people are still going to go watch it. And a lot of people will probably like it. And just by this trailer, I'm excited for it. I mean, you got imagery by Rodrigo Prieto, so already I'm there. <laughs> I will say that, like, as much as I am excited for this film um, and have been since kind of, you know, announcements about who was involved with it have happened, this trailer didn't really make me any more or less excited for it. I was kind of like, okay. Um, and it didn't really make me like want to rush out to watch it as soon as it's released. Um, I know that that's like, I feel like I've seen very split reactions on it. And some people saying that like, yeah, it's, it looks good, but like not anything that we didn't expect to see in this trailer. Um, and then some people obviously were very excited about it. But I, I, it didn't make me like any more excited than I already was. See, that's weird because I, <clears throat> I have the exact opposite reaction. Mob movies aren't really my favorite. I don't normally look forward to them. They just come and if I see them, I see them. But this trailer made me extremely, extremely excited for it. I just thought it was a well-paced trailer. It showed, you know, kind of what it is, but not really the whole total plot. I got a little bit of a taste. I love, you know, the production. I love... Every, I loved the score. I just loved how the trailer was made. So now I really do think, you know, once the movie drops, once it gets on Netflix, I think I'm going to watch it, you know, that day because I'm just excited for Scorsese. I'm excited for Pacino and De Niro and Pesci. And I do think that this trailer, even though, again, I'm not a huge fan of mob and gangster and these like total business type of films, I want to see it a lot more now. The hook for me and... I, I, I've talked to a couple of people about this so far, um, is that I'm being told that this movie is a very, very unique approach to the uh, mobster you know, genre, and it's unique for all of these people involved, Pacino, Pesci, Scorsese, and De Niro, because the movie deals a lot with uh, mortality and time. Uh, it's a it's a movie that w whose story takes place over several decades, and that's where the de-aging factor now comes in. And a lot of us were expecting when we heard about the de-aging to be like, oh, are we going to see like Robert De Niro from like Taxi Driver and Godfather like? Like what's what was this going to be? And it's like, no, no, no. It's it's more like early 1990s, late 1980s De Niro. You know, it's like they remove a few wrinkles and things like that. It's not nothing too, too drastic. Um, I but what I but what, what hooks me is. And I'm not, this is like an extreme comparison here, but like, is this going to be like Martin Scorsese's Amour? Where it's just like about these, you know, these aging uh, people and like this uh, whole uh, rumination on death and uh, the end of the line. And, you know, obviously you kind of get that with a lot of mob films, but I can't really remember a, a mob movie off the top of my head where it's dealing with um, like these older um, characters like coming to the end of like their lives, not because of like a whack or a hit or whatever, but just because of time itself. And if the movie can tap into something, you know, really, really special with that, I think that that's something that can resonate with a lot of us here um, because that's a very, very universal theme. You know, we constantly are always, you know, thinking about 
death and what lies beyond and the legacy we leave behind and things of that nature. So I'm kind of spitballing here with the idea of it, but I can confirm um, through several sources that that is very much what the film is about. You know, I, I want to go on record right here after the trailer has dropped and just put this out there. We could all go back and listen after the Oscars and the nominations come out. I think just in terms of how much this movie has going for it, this has the potential, I'm not saying it will, but has the potential to maybe tie one of the Oscar records in terms of nomination count, because you have so much to offer above the line with these performances and the writing and the direction, of course. But then below the line, you have all the Scorsese regulars, like Sandy Powell doing costumes, and you have production design and sound editing, sound mixing, stuff like that, but even visual effects. And that's something we don't see with Scorsese all the time. So in a world, I think you are looking at what could potentially be 13, 14 nominations here on its very best day. True. And Netflix, I think right now, especially in phase one, I think Netflix is the studio to lose this season, especially with this and Marriage Story. We have the potential for them to get a lot of nominations. Like I see Marriage Story potentially like breaking, you know, the big five. And I could see that happening. And plus with Scorsese, Netflix can totally sweep award season right now with those two films so i'm really looking at these two films right now that i think they're my they're definitely in my top five of most anticipated for the season so i'm really excited and interested to see where those two go and where netflix takes them netflix has a lot riding on this it's their biggest movie they've ever had it's a 200 million dollar production budget it's the biggest thing Scorsese's says he's ever done yeah that too more than hugo um it is going to be long i would assume it's at least three or very close to three the de-aging techniques that they're using in this are not like de-aging techniques you've seen in other movies before. There was no CGI suit or motion capture. There's no suit. dots on the face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you're looking at maybe at worst, potentially like a visual effects makeup win, you know, for this movie at worst, maybe. Or, or obviously at worst, nothing at all. <laughs> you know, let's see what the critical reaction is to it. But uh, some other things that really get me excited is obviously Joe Pesci coming out of retirement. Uh, always excited to see that. So nice to see. Bob De Niro uh, reportedly giving a performance that's unlike anything that he's ever done before. Uh, supposedly it's a very uh, quiet, internalized performance. And, uh, you know, it, it will remind people of what a high caliber actor he has always been. And I think people have just kind of like lost that with him over the years, like that idea that he really is one of the greatest of all time. And ditto Pacino, who has never worked with Martin Scorsese before. That's crazy. That is just crazy yeah. that he's never worked with Scorsese. Yeah. And he, too, is one of the greatest actors that's ever walked the face of the earth. And I understand that with, you know, something called Jack and Jill and few others um pacino has kind of had this weird perception amongst this uh a, a new generation of movie watchers that don't really i don't think know how great he really is let's put it this way we've never seen pacino directed by martin scorsese yeah so we'll leave it at that right yeah pacino was the element of this trailer that actually i was the most interested in and I think you're right, Matt, that we all know that Pacino's great, but lately he hasn't been making choices that have reminded us of that. And here, even though it's just a little bit, I really got excited to see what he's going to bring to this movie. Yeah, absolutely. He's playing Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we talked a little bit about Marriage Story as well. Marriage Story is being uh, the 
has been announced as the centerpiece film for the New York Film Festival, um, along with uh, Irishman being the opening night movie. So Netflix has two of the three slots on lockup here. Marriage Story, it is very, very clear. It's pretty much 100% confirmed. It is also going to be going to Telluride. So it will have its world premiere at Venice, then Telluride, then TIFF, then NYFF. They're giving it the Roma treatment this year, where it looks like they're going to be bringing that one to every single major festival and regional festival as well, like they did with Roma. Yeah. And this Mm -hmm. is now the third year in a row where we're seeing this happen. It was Roma last year, and the year before that, it was First Reformed. Yeah, wow. First Reformed really did play. Oh, no, wait. First Reformed didn't play at Telluride, I don't think. Yes, it did. Oh, wow. Did it? Damn. Anyway, that's cool. It just didn't come out until the next year. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, because I remember, oh, my God, I remember seeing First Reformed as the surprise screening at MYFF. Oh, man. Right. Wow, I can't believe, like, that's so weird when that happens, right? Like, like your Shape of Water and everything. Like, when Hurt Locker premieres in, like, 08, but it doesn't actually release until 09, and it's like, you get your whole, like, dates now all mixed up. <laughs> Crazy. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan L. Terry, screenwriting lecturer, film critic, and yeah, even figure skater. Known by my monikers Podstitute and Podhopper, you may have heard me on some of your favorite shows, such as Mike, Mike, and Oscar, One Movie Punch, In Session Film, Blockbuster Mentality, Movie Geek and Proud, Just So You Know, and more. And I would love to sit down with you on your show. Whether we are talking about my area of expertise, the American horror film, chatting about what we are watching on TV, or diving deep into a classic or underrated film, I would love to make time for you. You can follow me on Twitter at RLTerry1 and on my blog at RLTerryRealView.com. That's real with two E's. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to connecting with you soon. And then also announced as the closing night film for the New York Film Festival is Edward Norton's, not his directorial debut. I want to be very, very clear about that. This is not his first directorial feature. However, it is a very, very interesting adaptation called Motherless Brooklyn. Uh, And another really fun fact about uh, all three of these films playing at NYFF is that they all somehow center around New York, which is fitting. (laughs) What, what a shock. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> That's the most New York thing ever. So uh, what do we think about, uh, you know, Marvelous Brooklyn? It's a movie that I know popped up on our radar uh, when the TIFF announcement uh, came up. But now that it is being highlighted uh, so much at New York Film Fest, is this something that we really need to keep our eye on for Edward Norton? Oh, 100%. I think this is going to be a really top tier contender, especially for him and actor. I really don't know what this movie is about, to be honest with you. This is kind of a, a new thing that popped up on my radar. So, I mean, it's gotten a lot of attention at these festivals. And, you know, Edward Norton's a respected guy. So I'm keeping an eye out for it. It's based on a popular novel from 1999. And that novel was set in the 90s. But what they've done here is they go back and they place it in the 1950s. And Edward Norton, it sounds like a really baby part for him. He plays a... Uh, uh, private detective with Tourette syndrome investigating some sort of murder or crime in Brooklyn. It's also two hours and 24 minutes long. um, And it also co-stars Bruce Willis, Willem Dafoe, um, and also, oh my God, who else was it? Yeah, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Michael Kenneth Williams, Alec Baldwin, Bobby Cannavale, Leslie Mann. Sherry Jones. Sherry Jones, yeah. To me, it feels like the kind of movie that could really end up going either way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I need to keep my eye on it. Festivals here. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, let me also put it to you this way. It's 
kind of rare if ever I have to like go back and look at every single lineup. Usually NYFF does not have like a three for three in their opening centerpiece and closing night film in terms of uh, how well all three of those films do with awards bodies. Usually there's uh, at least one in there that, to your point, Nicole doesn't, or uh, Nicole, was it Nicole or Lauren just now? Uh, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I have to but keep my eye time, on it. I mean, it does. It is Edward Norton's baby. Like he directed, he did the screenplay, and he's starring in it. So like he put his blood, sweat, and tears into this. So I bet he has a really meaty role, and he's doing everything he possibly can. But I just I need to see more from him, maybe a trailer or something, or just some sort of attention. Because right now it's just really up in the air for me. Agreed. We don't usually see a film at uh, TIFF one that disappoints in the lineup that's already done. An- other festival runs mm-hmm. so maybe there will be a film that disappoints but i don't know if it's going to be this one because we see that it gets in at toronto and telluride and you know it seems to have a big push behind it from warner brothers uh you know hmm. the thing i the thing about this one that i keep on asking myself is edward norton has a reputation i think we all are aware of that Mm-hmm. But he's also like that kind of person who is very, very highly respected at the same time for his talent, regardless of, you know, his personal uh, reputation, if that makes sense. And I do recall like there was this time period where a lot of people felt like he should have been an Oscar winner, either for Primal Fear or American History X he gets another nomination a couple years later with Birdman, but that was J.K. Simmons' year. Nothing was going to stop that train, no matter what. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is, like, do we look at Edward Norton as someone that's overdue for awards recognition? I think so. I don't know overdue necessarily. I think you're right, Matt, that people do respect him a lot, but I think that there is that underlying uh, reputation that he has that kind of keeps people a, a little bit at bay. I think that people wouldn't mind seeing him win, but I don't know if there is this overwhelming support of like, oh my God, can you believe that Edward Norton doesn't have an Oscar at this point? Yeah, I wouldn't throw him into the same category as like Amy Adams, mm-hmm. but he he is a very talented guy and I think he is still searching for that role and that piece to really get him to where he wants to be. Question from Ian Balakalak. Can Motherless Brooklyn be via Star is Born this award season where one actor, being Edward Norton, can get at least four nominations for director, picture, adapted screenplay, and actor? I think that's the goal. Cooper didn't get actor. Mm -hmm. Cooper didn't get director. Yeah. I think that's the goal, and that's like the narrative they want to play, but I don't see it. I mean, again, I haven't seen anything from it yet, so I can't make an accurate, like, assumption, but I don't see it doing that. I just think it's a huge, there's just so much more out there for this season. I don't see it going there, but I think that's definitely the goal and that's what they want for it to happen. I would agree. Like, I think, is it possible? Mm-hmm. Totally. Would I bet money on it? Absolutely not. No, I, I'm actually going to definitively mm-hmm. say no, it's not going to happen. I think it's getting at least actor based on what this role seems to be. And, you know, I could definitely see one or pushing it into picture screenplay. The only one I don't see necessarily is director because we know how the director's branch feels about actors going over to directing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'd say at least three, maybe. I also need to look back at this and remind myself that if I remember correctly, I think it was uh, Laurence Olivier who was the last person to direct themselves Mm -hmm. to an Oscar win. No, it was Benini. Oh, God. 
I know that you want to forget about him. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Roberto it's Bat, such like an Roberto. afterthought. Like, I just... And he beat Edward Norton. <laughs> yeah. And Ian McKellen. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, that was Ian McKellen's win, in all honesty. Oh, my God. What a best actor this year. It's Edward Norton... And Ian McKellen and Roberto comes out with a new project. <laughs> I couldn't even. I couldn't deal. I wouldn't be able to handle it. <laughs> Watch, it's going to be Antonio Banderas. Look, they're going to lose to a foreign performance. Eh, maybe, possibly. There you go. Um, it's still. It's definitely starting to take shape, though, in terms of the uh, the field for uh, best actor. You know, with some of these uh, contenders now starting to come to the rise, and you know, we're starting to get an idea of like I like for example, like I just dropped uh, Jonathan Price. Uh, recently for the two popes uh, which hurts me because john for price has never gotten a nomination before but this is the strongest lineup since 2014 that we're looking at here. on paper yeah yeah sure yeah. before everything starts but that was the year that you know we didn't see ray fines or ben affleck or all these other people who really deserve to be in there Tim- timothy spall mm-hmm. sticking with like the male categories here for a second we had a second trailer drop this week uh from a24 called the lighthouse starring robert pattinson Willem Dafoe, and as soon as I saw this trailer, I immediately declared, I have now swapped out Willem Dafoe for the last thing he wanted, and in its place, I've put in the lighthouse, and I think that this could win him his Oscar. I will hold off on the thoughts, the reactions. Let's take a look at the trailer, and then you can all tell me what you all think. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Keeping secrets, are you? No, sir. Why just spill your beans? Why just spill your beans? weeks, two days, help me to recollect. Can we start with the movie or the Oscar? Whatever you want, man, because holy hell, what <laughs> was that a trailer? My God. I cannot wait for this. This is my most anticipated. looks like a Robert Eggers movie. This is my most anticipated film of the year. I cannot wait to see this. It looks so good. <laughs> I love the unknown factor of, I don't know where this movie is going in terms of its plot, but it looks absolutely bonkers. And the critical reception is not one of, say, something like Mother, where people were extremely divided. This has unanimous, absolutely across-the-board unanimous praise from everyone who has seen it so far. Well, I think I would still say that this does look like a movie that is going to appeal to a certain audience. I don't know if it's going to have, like, mask... uh, uh, kind of overwhelming reception, but I do think that it looks like something that it's going to have pockets of a lot of passion behind it, and that I think is going to do very well for it. It's not going to be an across the board 
uh, crowd pleaser. But I think for those that are interested in this kind of material, I think it does look like it'll be really good. I could see this being like the film that, for example, uh, the critics go apeshit for this in a bunch of categories for a director, cinematography, picture, the acting. And when it comes to the actual award season, I could see this just being like a Defoe play and that is it. And you call it a day. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's my prediction that it will probably just come down to Defoe. But, you know, that might be good enough for the movie. It might be more than the movie would get otherwise. I was just going to say, I'll just be thrilled if this movie means that more people start taking Robert Pattinson seriously. Yes. Because he's done such great work in the Mm -hmm. past, but I feel like everyone gets stuck up on the fact that, you know, he was in Twilight. And, like, is he great in it? Maybe not. But that also is probably because nobody hated Twilight more than Robert Pattinson. Like, and I feel like maybe this will be the time that, you know, him, beside of Willem Dafoe, is a really good place for him to show that like he really is one of the most talented actors that we have of his age group working today the rover maps to the stars life the lost city of z damsel good time it's like if you don't know from the seven years of since breaking dawn part two came out that this guy is the real deal and he is a terrific choice uh, to play, you know, Batman especially. He's going to be in uh, in Christopher Christopher Nolan's new film, Tenet. Like, I don't know. Like, what you, you're either just not seeing these movies or you're being completely ignorant. I, I don't know which one it is, but could be both. No, yeah, both him and Kristen Stewart have done phenomenal work post-Twilight. And I think having this come out and doing as well as it should do and as well as it is doing is really good to convince, you know, a different type of audience that he is good to be Batman. And I think... This film like definitely knows its audience that it's catering to, and I think that specific audience is going to love it. Right now, like again, I don't know that much is going into this trail. This because of this trailer, I'm excited for it. I'm interested in it. I kind of feel much more of like a waiting for a Godot sort of feel to it, which is a little bit dramatic and a little bit theatrical. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited for it, definitely. I'm excited for the psychological element to it, um, and just seeing because it is just these two, Defoe and Pattinson. So. From like a play-like perspective, I'm very, very interested in seeing these two actors play off each other, slowly descend into what looks like this batshit crazy madness, and where the story takes us from there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of really interesting imagery within this trailer. Um, I'm, I'm really, really thrilled by the black and white photography, and it's something that I, you know, I'll, I'll concede is definitely a. Uh, <laughs> always a hook for me when I see black and white cinematography. I'm always like, ooh, it's so pretty. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, there seems to be a lot going on with this one. I'm just, I'm cautious, obviously, from an awards perspective for obvious dark reasons. (laughs) But if this can maintain its critical approval, um, I could very well see um, it bringing Willem Dafoe and hell, maybe even Robert Pattinson. But then you end up in this weird thing where it's like, who's leading, who's supporting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be, if they can settle on where to place either one of them and, you know, like really commit to it in, in the campaign, um, I think that's going to be super important. But if but if it's all over the place, like if you have, uh, say, Defoe getting um, best actor at the Golden Globes, but he's best supporting actor at SAG and it's just like split everywhere, He's not going to get a nomination for this, and neither will Pattinson then, because they just don't—they won't know where to put him. I have this 
theory that regarding Defoe, I know you said you put him in your lineup for this and not the last thing he wanted. In supporting. Right. But this looks like the thing to me where it you know, does very well at Indie Spheres and with Critics Awards, and it's a very festival-friendly movie. But when it comes to the Academy at large, this is the type of performance that will help him, you know, help his cause going forward. But it's not necessarily going to be the one to get him the nomination. You know, we've seen this before where actors have a good year and all their work propels them, but it's not the one that they actually get the nomination for. Like Alicia Vikander winning for the Danish girl, not Ex Machina. Yeah, I could see yeah, that. I agree. I could very easily see that. Um, and I'm going to just say it once here on the uh, podcast because, I mean, everyone's thinking it. So I'll just say it. Why'd you spill your beans? <laughs> Which, based on this trailer, I declared this will probably be the I drink your milkshake of 2019. <laughs> um, God, it's so weird, so wacky, so interestingly cut together. Very, very effective uh, trailer all around. Uh, so props day 24 for this one. We have another question pertaining to the lighthouse uh, that I want to ask. So this one over here comes from our very own Bianca Gardner, V underscore Film B, who credit and props to uh, her. She is launching uh, her own podcast pretty soon called Ver League, which I'm very, very excited for. It takes a look at uh, female voices within the film industry. So when that rolls around, by all means, please check it out. I'm sure you'll be hearing us talk about that one a lot. Her question is, with the Lighthouse trailer dropping this week, what are some of your favorite black and white films released in the last 10 years? Well, obviously, obviously Roma. Yeah, Roma's up there. My favorite is Nebraska. I'm not the biggest fan of Nebraska, but I like it, though. I will, I will, I will give you that. I, I need to rewatch that. When we get to our 2013 retrospective, I plan to definitely revisit that. What, I mean, what about I'm... Francis Ha? Yeah, Francis Ha. Oh, Francis Ha, yes. Yeah, I, the ones that I would uh, point out is that there is one movie that uh, Coppola did actually exactly 10 years ago called Tetro that nobody saw, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and then there's another film that came out a couple years ago. It's a Mexican film called Gueros that has, I think, some of the most beautiful black and white photography I've ever seen. Honestly, kind of rivals Roma, to be honest. And I would recommend people seek out both of those films. I think both of them are really, really good. Does Frankenweenie count? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it counts, yeah. Have you all seen A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? No. I, I no, haven't, I but that. I've been meaning to. That one's really, really fantastic. I really like that one a lot. How about Ida? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say Ida and Cold, yeah, War. Yeah, Cold War. Um, I genuinely hope he keeps making black and white period films like throughout his entire filmography, honestly. I would not be against that at all. <laughs> I haven't seen it in years, so I don't know if it still holds up, but I remember liking Josh, uh, Josh Sweden's Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. Which was in black and white. Um, and I mean, of course, we, we kind of have to acknowledge it. I'm not the biggest fan, but, you know, it's there. Uh, the artist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the artist is really great. It works better on a big screen, obviously. But, uh, you know, in terms of how good a movie it is, yeah, it's terrific. It works It works well as a, um, to me, it works well as like an experiment of, hey, what if we actually did try to recreate the same style, shots, blocking, like everything that goes into like the films of, of old and do it like in a 2011, you know, setting. It, it, in that way, it's very, very interesting, you know? Just because it's a light movie, no, I think people discount the degree of difficulty that went into it. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I acknowledge that the the technical elements of that film are stupendous. 
Uh, that's really difficult, you know, to tap into, hey, how would they have shot this, you know, this many decades ago, you know? I remember they shot it in color, and then it was uh, then done in black and white in post-production, I believe. Mm. That's how a lot of uh, black and white movies these days are shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just trying to think of any more. Uh, you know, we said Francis Ha, Nebraska, Ida. Uh, we said Cold War. I'm not going to say Sin City, a dame to kill for if that was awful. No. <laughs> no. <sighs> Has everyone here seen Embrace of the Serpent? I haven't. I have not. Oh, it's another I one that I, I know of it. I heard it was great, though. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I, exactly, t- you know, Josh, I've heard amazing things about it. I'm just glad that uh, black and white films are still being made. And yeah. I know that they don't yeah. get like the widest distribution or much enthusiasm within the industry, but. I think there is something about the photography behind black and white that you just can't take your eyes off of it. I yeah. mean, hey, maybe with Roma last year and now the lighthouse this year can kind of start to buck that trend of yeah. people not getting excited about them. I would love that. Yeah, the great thing about black and the great thing about black and white to me is that it forces you to kind of use different tools in the toolbox when it comes to cinematography because you don't have color. So you have to use a lot in terms of contrast and in terms of blocking. And it's a very different way to stage your film. And that is what I find so fascinating about that format. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, let's move over to the polls now. Let's talk about uh, last week's polls. So for Hobbs and Shaw, we asked everyone, which is your favorite spinoff movie? Uh, we told everyone they could choose up to three. We got a lot of responses for this one. Uh, let's take a look at what the results say here. This is the first time I'm looking at these right now. Okay, all right. So one, two, three, four, and that's the fifth. Okay, here we go. So in fifth place with 17 votes is Bumblebee. In fourth place with 29 votes is the Lego Batman movie. In third place, with 36 votes, is Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And then the top two, 42 votes versus 46 votes. Pretty close. Number two is Deadpool. And number one is Creed. Hmm. Yeah. Creed is a great spinoff. Yeah, and and a movie that it was much better than it had any right to be. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I feel that way about the sequel too, Creed 2, where it's like, that was good. And I expected it to be crappy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I'm really glad that they are still keeping uh, that spinoff franchise like alive. And I'm, I'm genuinely excited for them to make a Creed 3 at some point. Like, I think Michael B. Jordan just keeps on knocking it out of the park. And he's so, so good in those. So for this week's uh, poll, we're asking everyone uh, which is their favorite female-led crime film. This is tied to the release of The Kitchen coming up this weekend. Choices include The Bling Ring, Blood Simple, The Bone Collector, The Brave One, Destroyer, Dressed to Kill, Fargo, Gone Girl, Jackie Brown, La Femme Nikita, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Miss Bala, Ocean's 8, Set It Off, Sicario, The Silence of the Lambs, Spring Breakers, Thelma and Louise, and Widows, plus a write-in option. For anyone that does not have a choice listed, uh, we'll start off with Michael. Michael, uh, any female-led crime films that uh, definitely come to mind for you? It is really, really difficult for me to choose between Fargo and The Silence of the Lambs, so I won't. I'm going to name both of them. <laughs> okay, very, very good, Nicole. I 
this is actually rough for me. I have a lot of love for the bling ring. Um, I just like Sofia Coppola's movies in general. I think this is a really interesting one. And I'm still just like uh, Emma Watson's performance in this because it's so different than most of her work is so interesting to me. Yeah. But I have to go with Widows. I mean, that's definitely my top one. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame. It's such a shame that Widows could not do better last year, both uh, with the box office and with awards bodies. Yeah. Hey, I hate being reminded of it. I get into like a post-depression, you know, every time I... <laughs> it's a strong movie. Yeah. That first man. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't cry. <laughs> okay. Lauren? Okay. my I... Uh, there's so many. But when I first heard you know, this list, I immediately went to Gone Girl. I just think that's a fantastic film. I love the pacing of it. I love Rosamund Pike and it. She is the force of nature in that, and she is just made to play that role. And I just think it's a great, gritty, dirty, keeps-you-on-your-toes sort of film. And I just love watching it. I never get bored of it, which is weird for something in that genre. You normally would get bored because you see everything coming, but I never do when I watch it. I see something different Every time I'm never, I'm always entertained by it. It's great. That and Birdman, when we get to our 2014 retrospective in the next off season uh, next year, um, those are the two films I cannot wait to revisit the most because, well, Birdman for reasons that I've apparently learned that people seemingly just don't like Birdman, which I like was kind of confused by. Uh, And then Gone Girl because... There's so much going on now with that film, I think, uh, in the years since then in terms of just the Me Too era and just like the change of perspective, I think, now Mm -hmm. that one could go back and revisit that, recontextualize a lot and, you know, just have a more thoughtful response to it. So really, really looking forward to that. And uh, Josh Parham. Well, out of the movies of this list, the three that are probably the top contenders for me are Fargo, Jackie Brown, and... Silence of the Lambs, and it's hard to pick between them, but I think if forced to do so, I have to go with Fargo. That is a movie that no matter, like, if it's just playing on television, I could just stop everything I'm doing and just sit down and watch it. It is so good. It is my favorite Coen Brothers film. I love Francis McDormand in it. I think that would have to be my pick. It's one of the most perfect movies ever made. It it truly is. Uh, My pick goes to Delman Louise. (laughs) That's another tremendous one. I absolutely adore the shit out of that movie. God, that's such a good movie. It's so satisfying, that movie. That ending still gets me every single time. Every time I watch it. Love it. I was just listening to a podcast that Gina Davis was on Mark Maron's podcast, and she was recalling a lot of memories of filming it and what it meant to people and how they didn't know it was going to be such a thing as they were doing it. They were just doing a movie. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she said to work with Ridley Scott and just the confidence he gave her and Susan Sarandon. And his scope and what he imagined the film to be, you know, that is just a perfect movie all around. He's a phenomenal director. I love him. I love him, too. I really, really wish that it's weird because I even like a bad Ridley Scott film, I still find somewhat interesting to a certain degree because he's such a technical uh, director. And, I, you know, I respond mm-hmm. to that that stuff. But man, oh, man, like when he does something like um, uh, The Counselor. I just like, oh yeah. God. <laughs> you know? He's almost like Clint Eastwood that. in that he's only inspired when he gets a good script. Yeah. I mean, for my money, he's directed one of the greatest action films ever made with like Black Hawk Down, one of the best sci-fi films ever with uh, Alien and or horror. I mean, 
then sci-fi yeah, with Blade he Runner. so diverse. He could do anything. That's the thing. That's the thing. He could do literally anything. That's why, like, that's the thing. Like, when I found out, like, when I was, when I first saw Thelma and Louise, and I found out it was, like, Ridley Scott came up, and I was like, no way. And my dad's like, what? I'm like, this guy did this in Alien? And he's like, isn't this, like, the greatest dude ever? <laughs> the fact that he can go from, like, genres on and make fantastic film after fantastic film that really makes you think and gets you entertained just shows how talented he is because it's really hard to jump from those types of genres and just be great. You know who's another director who's very talented who has jumped around from genre to genre? Sam Mendes. Yes! So we have a trailer uh, for Sam Mendes, his uh, newest film. He's given us movies like the Academy Award winning American Beauty, Road to Perdition. He directed both uh, Skyfall and Spectre. Now he is returning uh, to awards bait type films, uh, I guess, to a certain degree with 1917, a movie that we've heard a lot about. We were all anxiously waiting to see the trailer for this one shot by Roger Deakins, supposedly, although I wonder if the trailer kind of, you know, debunks this, supposedly shot in one unbroken take, starring a huge cast of people, including Dean Charles Chapman, Mark Strong, Richard Madden, Josh, Benedict Cumberbatch, (laughs) George McKay. There's a lot to offer here. Let's take a look at the trailer for this one and let's see what we think. Yes, sir. Is he alive? And with your help, I'd like to keep it that way. But they're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, we will lose 1,600 men. Your brother among them. Yeah, I think that rumor about the one take is still true. It's just how this trailer was edited. They're not giving that away yet, necessarily. I've heard that, too. I did hear that. And I don't know if it is entirely true. Obviously, the source that it came from, uh, at least on my end, is reliable. So I, I will go with it for now. But yeah, I was taken a little aback in the dialogue scenes where it cut to somebody's reaction to something that like Colin Firth said or whatever. And I was like, oh, so this isn't one shot. But yeah, when that uh, person told me, oh, no, 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 we just did it just like that for the trailer. I was like, uh, OK, <laughs> I know we'll that I'm very biased about this film because like. I studied history. World War One is one of my favorite periods of history. And also, like, probably everyone at this point knows that I'm obsessed with Sam Mendes. Um, my favorite play of the past year won him Best Director at the Tony Awards, uh, The Ferryman. And a fun fact is that uh, 
if people have been listening for a while, they probably know about my intense love for the movie Mary Queen of Scots, which was directed by Josie Rook, who was a um, resident artistic director under Sam Mendes when he was the artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse, where I used to intern. So this is essentially my perfect film. Watch it suck now. (laughs) Well, but here's the thing. It made me very nervous for the trailer because I was like, there's so much set up that I should love this, that if it disappoints me, it's going to be like, doubly disappointing um but this is by far my favorite trailer of the year thus far and it's very funny because now for me like i think all three of my most anticipated films of the year come out on christmas day um so i'm so excited i think this trailer just it's so interesting and how it was put together uh i'm so thrilled for this in terms of how the trailer is cut edited the sound work, the use of the font, I think this might actually be my favorite quote-unquote trailer mm-hmm. uh, this year. Regardless of the movie, it is you know a trailer for. Just the way the trailer itself was put together um, might be the best one I've seen this year, probably. This was a very good trailer. I, I actually did prefer The Irishman, which we talked about earlier. But, and I can't wait to see this movie. What I felt watching this trailer, though, was somebody went to... The marketing department at Sony and said, "Okay, watch Dunkirk, make it look as close to that as possible." I, th- I definitely, th- I, yeah, I, I think that comparison is inevitable, I, and I think mm-hmm. a large reason for that is, hey, Dunkirk made a lot of money, and Dunkirk's a great movie, right? Like, if this is as good as Dunkirk, we're in very, very good hands. And not to mention, too, you know, you think about it from a marketing standpoint. Um, if you can get the audience to remember, oh man, I love Dunkirk. This looks a lot like Dunkirk. We should go see this. I mean, that's the goal. Right, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even the the tagline was it like time is the enemy. That sounds like a tagline for Dunkirk. Yeah. yeah. Remember, like when Inception's uh, trailer came out, and every single trailer on the face of the planet was using the brum, you know, sound effect. Then yeah. Nolan just has that effect on people. Um, and by the way, I have seen the, t- the uh, Tenet trailer, um, the teaser that played uh, before Hobbs and Shaw, and it's fine. It's you know, it's whatever. <laughs> It, it, it's like barely anything. It's like a, a it's shot. A teaser. Yeah, it's a shot that's built around John David Washington specifically for the teaser. And then there's like a few quick shots. It's, you know, we'll, we'll wait till an official trailer to talk about that more. Uh, but this, though, guys, come on. Roger Deakins, my lord. <laughs> Seriously. I think that man's looking at a second Oscar very, very soon. I think that here's what here's what I'm thinking here. Um, the movie's also edited by Lee Smith who won the Oscar for Dunkirk. Oh, there you go. Okay, so there's that. You have it shot by Roger Deakins, supposedly in one shot, which, um, if true, by the way, Michael, if indeed, if it is true, then one has to wonder, uh, what did Lee Smith do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think there's a lot, you know, other than just cutting things together to be done. Right, it's not like he shot it as one shot. It has to be edited together to look that way. That's like when I thought it was absurd that Birdman, for as much as I have my own issues with that movie, I thought it was absurd that it didn't get a film editing nomination because the whole thing is edited together to look like, you know, it's helping, uh, what's his name, the cinematographer, Lubeski. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was you know, supporting what he did. Now, what if, what if hypothetically it is just a series of noticeable long 20-minute takes uh, where – it's not hidden editing like Birdman. There clearly will be edits, but the shots just go on for so, so long. Um, do we think that that is a possibility? 
Probably. I definitely do. And I think that if so, I think it's an interesting film to like, if they are doing it that way to make this choice about Justin, you know, maybe are they trying to make some sort of statement about the monotony of trench warfare? Yeah. Um, like World War One feels particularly well suited as a subject to that sort of filmmaking. Agreed. Um, another thing to consider here, guys, is that the music is being done by Thomas Newman, who still does not have an Oscar in his hands. Mm-hmm. Truly overdue. <laughs> um, if there's any movie that can bring Sam Mendes back, though, to the like director, best picture conversation, um, obviously on paper, uh, this is definitely it. And Nicole, one thing to, to keep in mind that I think is very, very interesting about the choice of Sam Mendes and how this movie is being put together is that... He can take his skills as a theater director in terms of the blocking and the staging. And if these long takes are to be indeed believed or even the one shot aspect, that plays right up his wheelhouse then. Precisely. That's something to really, really be excited about. Theatrical director would be perfect for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When he did The Ferryman, that's a three hour play that is putting you in the situation, uh, not in real time, but it feels like you're watching this all as it unfolds. Mm -hmm. And that is thrilling. It is a suspenseful you know, you feel like something's creeping up on you and you don't know when it's going to hit. And that's all, yeah, it's all set in one day, which then if this is also all set in one day, you know, it's right in what he's been doing for the past couple of years, Mm -hmm. both on stage and on film. And I think that it's also interesting, one of the young leads in it, what is his name? Um, Dean Dean Charles Chapman Chapman. from uh, Game of Um, Thrones. Yeah, obviously people know him from Game of Thrones, but he also comes from a theater background. Um, he was one of the Billy Elliots alongside uh, at the same time of, as uh, Tom Holland um, whenever he was younger. So I think that, you know, you have some theatrical background in the actors and then a very theatrical director. And I think that means that if if any film was going to you know succeed right now with this long shot. Uh, method, then it feels like this is the perfect one. He'll also be in The King. Uh, the Timothy Chalamet film. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Isn't Robert Pattinson also in that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, and he's also going to be in uh, Blinded by the Light, which comes out in a few oh, days exciting. as well. So he's having a good yeah. year. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, Game of Thrones, you know, it's 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 it's, it's, it's all good. Um, I feel like yeah. I should look up the third boy who was a uh, Billy Elliot alongside the two of them. <laughs> he's getting drunk in a bar somewhere, maybe. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, this trailer does look really good. I'm so excited to see the movie, but I do have to ding it for one thing. No Madden. <laughs> They're keeping so. him as a reveal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, if there's one thing I would criticize the trailer for um there is that that there is that one shot of the soldier running and the bombs dropping and the timing of the sound effects all really cool right really really well executed personally i think that soldier should be running a little bit faster (laughs) but that's just me (laughs) you know he looks like he's doing like a very intense jog then a frantic i need to get out of here otherwise i'm going to die kind of a run you know you don't know how long he's been running that like the 20th take <laughs> that is true. That is true. I should They're be a little less harsh. He's done. <laughs> uh, very, very excited for this on paper, as we said before. I've heard a lot of people say stuff like, oh, it's just Dunkirk all over again. Oh, it's another World War movie. I don't need these. You know, I'm sorry, but name the last really good World War One movie. Exactly. Thank you. And say, uh, "All Quiet on the Western Front." Yeah, of course. All Quiet on the Western Front. Never really told as much as World War Two. It's just not 
people like to see much more World War II, which I like that World War One is getting more attention these days. It's a war that needs to be seen and needs to be understood more. And I'm glad that we are getting films in mainstream, wide release platforms that we get to see them. I mean, if people you know, Matt, I do have one, actually. Mm. They shall not grow old. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. good. If, if people if are you looking just... to... Um... To go watch some recent World War One movies, Journey's End had Sam Claflin in it and was very good. I thought that is a really, really good. Nice yes, the play. And also, there's a movie that came out not that long ago called Testament of Youth mm-hmm. uh, that had Kit Harrington in it. I, I think that's a really nice look at kind of the opposite side of the trench warfare in terms of, you know, more of what was happening to women during mm-hmm. that time. Um, so yeah, if people are looking to like prep for this movie. Those are two good ones. One other one I'll throw out there, too, is um, the World War One segment in Lost City of Z. It's a very, very short segment, but I still maintain it's like the best segment of that movie. Uh, so, yeah, if people want to get an idea, um, that's definitely something to look into. Gilbert did some truly tremendous work with uh, War Horse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I don't like War Horse, though. <laughs> I don't think that. No, but I mean, just the direction of the action sequences, those like they feel like their own little movie within that. Yeah, and I most World War One movies take most World War One movies always follow the British perspective. So it would be nice. I mean, I know this also follows England, but it would be nice to see a different country to see how that looks on their side. Yeah. One other thing about this movie too to uh, consider um, is the presence of uh, George McKay, who was yeah. really, really good in Captain Fantastic a few years ago, and he's been around. Um, I don't even know necessarily if he is the lead of this, but he is top billing currently. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there because I really thought he was really great in that movie. And I'm really excited to see that if he is indeed the lead, that he is getting this opportunity. Uh, Josh, I just did just look this up. And Dean Charles Chapman's character, uh, it looks like it's called Blake. And Richard Madden right now is uh, said to be playing Lieutenant Blake. So maybe that's the brother that they're... Uh trying to get that, to his regiment that's what safe. I, that's what I assumed. Yeah. That because he wasn't featured in the trailer, I my mm-hmm. assumption was that he is the brother that they are going out to get. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm still going to see it either way because of he <laughs> <laughs> On paper right now, um, this I think I, I think everyone needs to put this in all the technical categories and picture director right yeah. now. Um, that's my At least for right current now. take. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I also would be tempted to put Deacons in the wind for cinematography. And I don't know. I'm, I'm going back and forth between Max Richter and Thomas Newman right now at Astra and this for score. But who knows? Maybe something else will come along and just kind of knock them both out, you know? And you know what? I've, we forgot to mention when we were talking about Motherless Brooklyn from a tech standpoint, cinematography by Dick Pope and music by Daniel Pemberton. Yeah, Daniel Pemberton is definitely going to get nominated at some point. He's a really, really good composer. Oh, and a song by... Uh... Tom York. Yo, Tom. Should have gotten that Suspiria nom. <laughs> yep. Just saying. <laughs> Alrighty. So, all three trailers are out of the way. We're now up to uh, fan questions that have been lingering. Let's take a look and see uh, what we can answer for everybody here. At HLVD Movies asks, which movie that is currently being predicted by many do you believe will fail in award season? like First Man Widows last year. Okay, so not like totally shut out, but maybe like... Underwhelms. Uh, let's, go with, let's go with Underwhelms. Like underwhelms. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, man, you know, I don't like to say this, but I have a feeling it's going to be Harriet. Yep, I am right there with you. 
there's just something about the movie that just feels like there's a lot of reverence for that material, obviously, but I don't know. I just have this feeling like people are going to just watch it and feel like, yeah, that's good, but not really praise it as a masterpiece. And I think that's going to be a sad state. So I hope I'm proven wrong, but I have a feeling like that's going to be one that kind of comes and goes. Hmm. I think Motherless Brooklyn isn't really going to make it. I don't know. It's just something that I see. It's just, I think it's too intense and too like trying to do the stars born route. And I don't see it getting anything really. I would agree with that. Motherless Brooklyn is kind of mine, especially because I feel like that's one of the ones where people are making predictions based on very little um, knowledge of the actual product as far, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like we've seen more of mm-hmm. most of the other ones that are having a lot of predictions made about them. I'll say Little Women. Ooh. I think it could still land in things like Screenplay and Saoirse Ronan, but I don't know if it's going to be a like nine nomination across the board movie. Yeah, I kind of agree about that too. I, I think it'll do well, but I don't know if it's going to be like in those many top categories. I feel like I can't really predict that much about it until we get the trailer, which is supposed yeah. to be coming soon, right? This week, apparently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll, we'll we'll see a little bit more then, obviously. But um, hopefully, it's not like the Harriet trailer where it's like we were predicting, and then we saw the trailer, and then we were like, "Oh, let's bump the brakes a little bit here." And hopefully, this is just a marketing thing. But you know, we'll find out soon. Mm-hmm. righty. Next question, Isaiah Washington. Do you have any early contenders for the sound categories? For me, I have John Wick and Avengers Endgame in there. I do have contenders, but I don't have either of them in there. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. Oh, I love yeah. John Wick. I want it to go everywhere. Yeah, 1917 is my pick thus yeah. far. 1917, I think we'll do both. Star Wars, we'll probably do both. Mm-hmm. The Irishman, Ford versus Ferrari. Ford v. Then, Ferrari is definitely, I think, going to get in there for sure. Yeah. You know, it, every year you see like the four that cross over and then one difference in each. So the four I just named, I think, will cross over in both. And then for sound mixing, yes, I think Cats will get a nomination there just because it's a musical. And then for sound editing, our friend Will Mavity mentioned this the other day. I have it in my predictions for now because I think the film's going to be a pretty big hit with nominations. Watch out in sound editing for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because there is a beloved member of the sound branch there doing some work. Uh, Wiley, um, what's his name? Wiley Statement. Yeah. So watch out there. I have it in. He has another interesting follow-up question, uh, Isaiah Washington. If Gemini Man becomes good or even a great movie, do you believe the visual effects for that um, and The Irishman can cancel each other out because they are literally doing the exact same thing? I don't think they're doing the exact same thing. I think they're doing similar things different ways. If I'm being completely honest, I think the de-aging in Gemini Man looks better than The Irishman, but I have absolutely no confidence in Gemini Man being a better movie than The Irishman. (laughs) He didn't even do a director's read-through of the script. He just said he wanted to work with the technology and went ahead with it after it had been attached to many different writers. You know how Angley is right now. Yeah. I think that, like, I don't see that happening in terms of nominations. I guess I could see that happening in terms of a win, them going for something completely different than either one of those. But I just don't really see Gemini Man having the overall push that the Irishman will. Same, I agree. I also have to say, I am sort of at a loss with this category right now. I really don't know what to put in the number one spot. Because everything kind of feels like it has equal amounts going for it and also things working against it. And I really don't know what to put at number one. Yeah, I think we're just going to go ahead and give it to Star Wars this year. 
I think the Irishman is actually like the good placeholder for now in the, you know, it may not be like considered the best visual effects of the year possibly, but, you know, when you're doing that whole, uh, which one feels more like a best picture contender type thing. I do think this would be a good place to reward Star Wars. And I feel like it could end up being the one that like offends the least amount of people in terms of, you know, they're like everybody talked about cats for a while, but then every you know there's so many people who think that cats looks horrendous. I don't know, there, Nicole. The, the uh, Last Jedi fans, uh, or or rather, the Last Jedi detractors might come out full swing for Rise of Skywalker and be offended no matter what. Yeah, but are there that many of those people in? No, no, no. I'm making a voting. joke here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I get it. Uh, alrighty, so Carson Timar, I mentioned before uh, that 1917 was my favorite trailer of the year, but Carson asks, what is all of our favorite trailers of the year so far? Mine's 1917. I think it's a extremely well-made trailer, and it made me extremely interested and extremely hyped for this movie, where, again, I was kind of on the fence because I've seen so many war movies, but just the way it was the t- editing, the music, I loved it. I can't wait to see this movie. Yeah, 1917 is probably my favorite as well. Um, In terms of what I think is the best trailer of the year, I think my favorite trailer of the year in terms of a, like, from an emotional standpoint might actually be The Rise of Skywalker thus far. Um, Partially just because, like, seeing Carrie Fisher in it got me really emotional. Um, But I do think that 1917 would be what I would say was the best trailer thus far of the year. My favorite is The Irishman. I'm really into The Lighthouse. I think that is a really mm-hmm. well put yeah. together trailer that, especially because it really does a great job of giving you a feeling of the movie without revealing too much about the plot. And that's like my favorite kind of trailer to watch. So what a week it's been. All of our favorites fell this week. Yeah. 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 I, I mentioned Star Wars just to prove that we have watched other trailers. <laughs> um, I Well, in terms of like proving that we've watched other trailers, I really did like the second trailer for Queen and Slim a lot. And I'm at a point now, based on uh, both trailers that have released for that movie, where I'm ready to predict that for picture, screenplay, editing, and I'm lurking right now with acting and cinematography. There's a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff coming. Last question. This one comes from EW.2480. 1999 is known for its amazing films. Ten years later, 2009, mm, not so much. When the dust has settled come December 31st, do you all foresee 2019 as being more like 1999 or 2009? Well, I do want to push back on that for a second because I think 99 does hold its spot as one of the best years for good reason. But I think 2009 had some really remarkable films as well. That's one of the years I look back on. Yeah. No, I, I think 20. I think I think every year has got amazing films, granted. But um, I in, in comparing 1999 to 2009, I mean, like 1999, I'll, I'll take that any day, every day. Um, I wouldn't even say 2009 is the best year for the 2000s. I would say that uh, belongs to 2007. Sure, sure. But I think it's right up there. You got like Serious Man and Glorious Bastards, Hurt Locker, lots of great stuff. Yeah, it's a little weird. I don't know yet still which I mean, I, I don't even know even if 2019 was not being counted. I don't know what I would say was the best year for this decade quite yet. Maybe 20. Maybe 20. Oh, my God. 2017. I would say 2017. Yeah, I think 2017 has a lot of variety in there. I think on paper this year looks really strong. See, I I disagree only because I feel even now as we're in August, I don't feel like this year has been strong. I think it's back heavy, 
potentially with a lot yeah. of really yeah. great stuff. Actually, that's what I'm thinking. You know, once we got to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that kicked it off. You got that, you got the farewell, and now we have like Marriage Story, Irishman, Little Women, uh, Laundromat, you know, all this stuff coming up that looks really fascinating. No, yeah, backstory is a lot. The back is a lot stronger than the front. I think that there are also going to be a lot of movies from this year that people continue to talk about for a long time, like The Farewell and even Booksmart and The Lighthouse and Little Women and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I think is going to help it be perceived as a better year, like 10 years down the road, because people will have forgotten about some of the, you know, kind of duds that came out of this year. I can't wait to be talking about Hobbs and Shaw 25 years from now. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) But all we're going to be talking about is cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a quick thing before we get out of here. Um, my sign off really quick is uh, to just encourage everyone, uh, if it's playing by you, please, please, please get out and support Luce and the Nightingale. Uh, those are two movies that really, really could use the push right now. I understand most people that are listening, it's not there yet. But if it is, and if it does come around, please, please, please go. Uh, Movies like this really, really need our support. And we will have podcast reviews of both those movies dropping this week. Michael, where can I find you on the internet? Well, before I sign off, I just want to mention one little piece of news that we got this week. And I don't think it got picked up by everyone, but it's worth mentioning. Guillermo del Toro has a new film coming out called Nightmare Alley, a remake of a film from the 40s. But the cast he is assembling for this is obscene. You ready for this? It's Bradley Cooper is already set to star. But this week we learned that attached to the project right now, these are not officially cast people, but they you know seem to be in deep negotiations. Ready for this? We have Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Rooney Mara, Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Ron Perlman, Willem Dafoe, and Mark Pavanelli. Is this set to come out before or after Pinocchio? Before. I would live for a horror carol reunion. (laughs) I know. I would die. I'm actually just really excited in general for Guillermo to come back with a new film post Shape of Water at this point. Um, I remember, like he said, he was taking the sabbatical and such. And I have to admit, I was genuinely a little little worried for him uh, for a little bit there. He said a one-year sabbatical. Yeah. That's all he was doing. And he's still producing during the time. He has scary stories still in the dark. coming. Yeah, I'm seeing that this week excited so yeah this is going to be one he's directing it seems like he's pushed pinocchio off to the side right now to do this because the cast is really getting in place but if all these people really land in there mm-hmm. that would be tremendous you know cape Blanchett and Rooney mara of course but then to see bradley cooper with them richard jenkins well that guy's doing everything <laughs> do we think that this could be just more like um I don't know, less of a uh, awards contender like Shape of Water and more like a Crimson Peak sort of a thing where it's like an exercise in genre and doesn't really land? Or like, what do, what do we think on paper? I think it's going to be like the Shape of Water where it is genre, but it does very well. Nightmare Alley begins with an extraordinary description of a freak show, geek, alcoholic, an object and the object of voyeuristic crowds, gleeful disgust and derision going about his work at a county fair. Young Stan Carlyle is working as a carny, and he wonders how a man could fall so low. There's no way in hell he vows that anything like this will ever happen to him. Since Stan is clever and ambitious and not without a useful streak of ruthlessness, soon enough he's going places. On stage, he plays the mentalist, who is this, it looks like his wife, so that could be the Cape Blanchett character, maybe. Then he falls into full-blown spiritualist, catering to the needs of the rich and gullible and their well-upholstered homes. It looks like the world for Stan is taking new, at least for now. 
So that's very vague right there. Obviously, you could see the original film from uh, the 40s and the novel that it's based on. But just reading that description, it seems like they're being vague intentionally because maybe he has a different direction to go on this. And I'm excited to see what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, how can you not be excited now for a new Guillermo del Toro film? At, like like Greta Gerwig, we, we all love him, you know? So I, I don't know if you guys remember that. At, at the Oscars, she put her hand over her heart. And she's like, I love him. <laughs> anyway. I have like Oscar ceremonies like committed to memory. Like I remember like exact words from speeches and things like that. Don't don't at me. <laughs> Michael, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at mschwartz95. Nicole. I am at Nicole Ackman 16 and everyone please come check on me when that Little Women movie trailer drops. <laughs> I'll make sure you don't die of happiness. Please. Lauren? You can find me on Twitter at Lauren Lamango. Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 154 of the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really, really appreciate your feedback and your support when it is warranted and not like what you all did for our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review. Moving on from that, I also <laughs> want to say that if you head on over to Patreon for $1 minimum a month, month you can support us with some extra podcast content and some other goodies as well so thank you so much for all of that and thank you so much for listening as always phase one is coming i am so so excited we shall see you all next time